0: Welcome back to Plenary Session. Today's podcast features two videos that I've put together into a single episode. The beginning is about the study Smart Start. It is an uncontrolled study from the MD Anderson Group. The second part is about Thanksgiving and the different rituals the experts in COVID-19 policy are following based on a stat article. I think you're gonna like both parts of this, but only you will be the judge. If you like this podcast on iTunes, then leave a review not just the stars, write something down, put your thoughts down and leave a review. And if you like this on any other platform, leave a review there. I will be in person in Ash. If you wanna talk to me, email plenary session podcast at gmail.com. I will be around, I will be covering all the things. If you wanna suggest articles, send them there. Until next time. Welcome back to Plenary Session. This is the podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology and health policy. It's always been that way and it will always be that way. Today, I'm talking about the Smart Start Study. This is the JCO publication that I said I was going to talk about, and I've eventually gotten around to actually doing it. I probably could have spent even more time digging into the weeds, but I thought, you know what? i got to get this out before Ash, because I'm going to have a whole lot more to do during Ash. That's right. I'll be there in person. And that's right. I'll be covering every single one of the plenary sessions and every late-breaking abstract that catches my fancy. Anyone making claims about practice-changing trials is going to have to face plenary session scrutiny. And if you are out there listening to the podcast and you have a suggestion for what I should cover, go ahead and email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. Today, it's the Smart Start Study. It's neither smart nor is it the start, so I don't know why they called it that. It's a clever bit of branding, it's got some clever pictures in it, and it got a lot of buzz on the internet, on Twitter. But as I'm going to argue in this video, it's neither smart nor is it the start. There was a start that was before this, and it's not smart, and frankly, it's not useful. It's just not useful. Uncontrolled studies in frontline, DLBCL, are absolutely useless. Say it with me. Useless. They're useless, and no one should ever do them. Once you establish a few things, which we'll talk about, you need to randomize, randomize, randomize. I'm going to go through the history of lymphoma and explain why that is the case. Lymphoma more than anything else. For other things, to some degree, yes. But lymphoma particularly, you cannot take a benchmark CR rate, a benchmark response rate, and do anything with it. So we're going to walk you through that. So let's take a look at this paper. This is Smart Start. Rituximab, lenalidomide, and ibrutinib, RLI, in patients with newly diagnosed B-cell lymphoma. And this is by the MD Anderson group. It's a single center phase two study. Single center phase two studies in oncology are known for being not that reliable, not that reliable, but this is a single center phase two study. We're gonna talk about it. Let's get into it. Number one, what do they do here? Between May, 2016 and February, 2019, they found 60 people with non-GCB, DLBCL. So that's the activated B cell phenotype. It's not the germinal center B cell phenotype, okay? We know that it double hit the translocations that occur in MIC and BCL2 or BCL6, that tends to happen in GCB. But this is the non-GCB subtype, Maybe as a bit of background, I'll just tell you a little bit about GCB, non-GCB. Hadn't planned on this, but of course, you may all remember the seminal paper. I believe it was Nature 99-2000 by Ash Elizaday, last author, Loose Stout Came out of the New England Journal, came out of, uh, of the NCI, Nature. And basically it used uh, hierarchical Bayesian clustering to create these different subtypes of DLBCL. We've tried many other things to sort of tease out DLBCL. There's the high expression, BCL2 and MIC. There is the double hit where it actually has a translocation of those oncogenes and a lot of this stuff just you know is kind of prognostic but it hasn't really been clinically useful ever. We don't really have robust randomized evidence that we ought to treat any of these categories differently than the others. The strongest case you could make is you ought to treat mic rearrangement a little bit differently, but that's only because chop has bad outcomes. You don't technically have randomized evidence that doing something differently is actually better for mic. But for double expressor even the prognostic studies are a wash for ABC, GCB phenotypes. No one has ever proven in the frontline setting, certainly, that by doing anything differently, you'll achieve any better outcome versus just treating it all the same. And I think most practicing clinicians, we don't even always think about the subtype. We don't think about Hans classification, nor do we think about gene expression profiling. We don't need to think about it. We know that the right answer is R-CHOP. You know, We know that that's the right answer, and we can talk a little bit more Polotuzumab in another video. I think I've already covered it on this channel but we know the right answer. You don't need to know subtypes most of the time. These authors are focusing on the non-GCB, DLBCL. They have some pathophysiologic rationale for why that's the case. It's actually a little bit weaker than they think. They probably would have been better off focusing on both groups, but that's what they did. Frontline, RLI, you get that a couple cycles, and then you get the standard of care plus RLI. Here's basically what they're doing in their schema. They're giving you Rituxin, ibrutinib, lenalidomide. They are giving you Ibrutinib, at the 560 milligram dose initially, they lowered that to 420 in the RCHOP arm based on preliminary results uh, coming from a randomized control trial Janssen was running with RCHOP. Lenalidomide gives it at 21 milligrams, and uh, it initially was only allowed EPOC as the backbone, because that was where the phase one data was done. Then when, of course, Nancy Bartlett wyndham Wilson, CLGB study failed to show the superiority of EPOC over Chop and thus CHOP was clearly going to be the standard of care for a while to come, They protocol amended this study and said you could use CHOP as well. Now, they had a phase one that showed RLI was safe to give with EPOC by phase one standards. They don't have such a phase one for CHOP, but they write in their protocol that they assume it's all going to be hunky-dory because CHOP is not as bad as EPOC. That's what they write. And they don't technically have any data that you could give RLA by itself in a phase one, but that's okay because, of course, they're just omitting the backbone. I think that's fine. But substituting CHOP for EPOC, I mean, they're just playing a little bit fast and loose with the transitive property. But this is roughly the schema, okay? And this is this is what they set out to do in the frontline DLBCL. Why are they getting these doses? Where are they getting these doses? They're getting these doses from this study. This is the multi-center phase 1B dose escalation study of ibrutinib and lenalidomide combined with dose-adjusted EPOC-R in patients with relapsed refractory DLBCL. They had to have at least one prior line of treatment. This was largely done at the NCI, and I believe, full disclosure, when I was a fellow, I might have actually enrolled some patients on this study because I was fellow there between 2012 and 2015, and I worked closely with and, uh and Kieran um this study basically holds all these things constant but dose escalates the lenalidomide it did not reach mtd so it declared that uh 25 milligrams of lenalidomide was uh going to be the uh, the, the dose that they take forward into phase two uh they did note that there were some responses you know in 10 response evaluable patients with at least one post-baseline radiologic assessment two patients had cr Uh, three had PR, and two had the best response of stable disease. Okay, that's pretty useless. Uh, Stable disease is not a useful concept. It's a useless concept. It means you didn't have a response. Three had PD. Four four out of six response evaluable non-GCB patients achieved objective response. So they have some benchmark response rate, a 70% response rate in non-GCB, DLBCL, in relapse refractory setting. I think... That's that's certainly a response rate that warrants some further consideration. It's not a response rate good enough to hang your hat on. Uh, it's not a response rate low enough that you'll just abandon this altogether. This is something that they are reporting. Okay, so now I think the question is what to do next, and the answer, of course, is randomization. That's not what's going to happen here. They actually had a Part two dose. Uh, 560 milligrams ibrutinib and 25 milligrams lenalidomide, given on a 21-day cycle. Maybe earlier in this video I misspoke. 25 milligrams, 21-day cycle, combined with standard dose-adjusted EPOC-R. Um, and that's the dose they took forward. And later, not that much later, uh, in time, but much later in terms of publication, they're pretty slow to publish this paper, actually. I wonder what's going on at the NCI. Y- you don't want to write it up faster? They eventually published, uh, but these results were well known for a long time, that the objective response rate was 88%. When you moved at the at the at the phase two dose, and 90% in ABC, DLBCL, 88% in non-G C B. So already you got in the relapse refractory setting. It's well known you're getting high 80% response rate. That's certainly a response rate that, you know, you can say justifies further exploration of these doses and these drugs. You got that. I think. There's no doubt about it. To be honest, how low would you tolerate? I think, you know, you might even go down to 40%. And how high? 100%. There's no response rate so high that you are ensured that this is a winning strategy. You just want to get a rough benchmark. Um, you could argue that once you established uh, the the MTD or failed to establish it, which to some degree establishes it, once you sort out your phase two dose, you can just do a phase two trial that has built-in randomization. That's what I'm going to propose by the end of this. Here's Smart Start. The authors knew this phase one study. They cited in their protocol. And here they do what they call an investigator initiated, although it's not exactly a crazy hypothesis. It's pretty much an extension of what's been done. Open label, single center, phase two clinical trial. Adult patients were eligible if they had previously untreated non GCB DLBCL, defined by immunohistochemistry, so presumably the Hans algorithm. Okay, that's what they're doing here. They're just moving this to the frontline setting. And how would you want to do that in lymphoma? I'll tell you how you want to do it. You want to do it with a randomized phase two. You want to just start having a phase two randomize people. Have some futility rule that if the response rate is uh, less than 10 percentage points, less than our CHOP, the standard of care, we will abort the whole mission. Uh, Or if the response rate isn't more than 10% points better, we'll abort the whole mission. Have some futility rules, but then build it in a way that you'll immediately take that randomized phase two and just go into phase three. So you'll settle once and for all, do people live longer or live better with your novel strategy versus the established standard of care doing another phase two trial to establish a response rate in the frontline setting is pretty, is pretty stupid, I'm going to argue. It's certainly stupid because, to some degree, you know it's not going to be below 67% because Wyndham and colleagues had already reported that in the phase one study in the relapse refractory setting. It's not going to be lower in the frontline setting. It's going to be better. And the second thing is that there's no number above which it will be that you'll be guaranteed a winner in randomization. And I'm going to show you that. The initial design of the trial defined chemotherapy's EPOC with fixed dosing, however, when an unrelated first-line trial in DLBCL patients found RCHOP equivalent to r epoch, the study protocol was amended to allow treating EPOC or CHOP. Okay. The truth is, y'all got a little bit ahead of yourselves with the Epoch bandwagon and trying to wed things to Epoch when Epoch is arguably no better than r It failed to demonstrate superiority. That study actually doesn't show equivalence. I think these authors mistakenly think it shows the equivalence of Epoch and r and other people mistakenly think that if you have a failed superiority study, you don't magically have equivalence if the curves are overlapping. Equivalence studies are a subset of non-inferiority studies where the margin or delta is very, very tight. And you prove that your novel regimen, which in this case is more cumbersome and toxic, has a survival that's no worse than some pre-specified survival. That wasn't the case with the CLGB study. So you cannot say it's equivalent. You can just say it failed to demonstrate superiority. And since it's more toxic and more cumbersome, only an idiot would keep giving epoch. That's what I think. I mean I think that's the right answer. You fail to demonstrate superiority. You're not automatically equivalent. Equivalence isn't just something you get to say when you have failed. And the same goes true for the Balantomab investigators. I see a lot of myeloma doctors say, well Balantomab's equivalent to Pomdex. No it's not. Balantomeb failed to show superiority over a antiquated and arguably unethical control arm of POMDEX showing that Belantamab is a gross, gross failure and it shouldn't probably come to the market. It certainly causes visual damage, but it can't even beat POMDEX. That's pretty bad, even in people who've already had IMITS. Back to this paper. The primary endpoint was to estimate overall response rate at the end of cycle two of RLI and complete response at the end of all therapy. Okay, Sure, but that's not really useful or interesting because no matter what those numbers are, I have no idea if I should do this over the established standard of care, RCHOP. I'll have no idea. Even if you have a magic 100% response rate after two cycles, I'll have no idea what to do because there is no response rate that guarantees that you're going to be better in a Phase 3 study. And here are the results. This is the one thing I'll give him credit for. A nice figure and a nice figure leads to a lot of nice tweets but it doesn't lead to good science that's the problem that they face and here's what they show the blue is of course cr the dark red is pr um and what you see is as you go from two uh to two plus chemotherapy to end of therapy you know you're deepening the response and that's the cr and pr after two of rli and you know that's the response deepening i don't know I'm glad it's not zero, but I certainly didn't expect that. If Wyndham is getting a 67% response rate in relapse refractory DLBCL, I'm pretty sure they'd at least get a 70% response rate. They write that their futility rule was less than 70%. I'm pretty confident they were never going to hit that futility rule, and I think they know it and I know it, that the futility rule itself is futile because it's obviously too permissive. It just allows them to conduct their study open-ended, which they did. 60 people participated in this this fool's errand and, and we'll show and I and I'll talk to you more about why. Here's the PFS and OS, 91% 96%. Is that good? Is that bad? Is that good? Is that bad? Well, how many of these people had advanced stage disease and how many had early stage disease? We'll get to that. Probably about a third had early stage disease. Is this what you would expect from people who the doctor was so comfortable with the tempo of their lymphoma that the doctor felt comfortable enrolling them on this study where they may have even had to get some temporizing steroids and we had to wait to start to enroll them on this study. Those are different than the average lymphoma patient in whom you don't want to wait and you have to pull the trigger right away. Those people are getting shunted away from this study. So what would be the survival in the counterfactual world where these people just got our chop? And the answer is without randomization, you don't know the answer. You can't compare it to other studies. And so this is actually totally useless. I don't know if it's good or bad or whatever, because I have nothing to compare it to. And these people are fundamentally non-comparable with the average person who walks in your clinic. They are, of course, at the MD Anderson, known for their unusual single center results over the years. I mean, we gotta admit, they got some pretty high numbers that don't always replicate. And these people have gone through the selection filter of all the things it takes to enroll in this study. I have no idea what to do with these percentages. Certainly I'm not celebrating because, Maybe i get better with our chop. So why is this the bad choice? This is why you have to know history. As George Santayana said, he who forgets history is condemned to repeat it. And this is the history. Back in the days, back in the 1980s and early 1990s, a group of people assembled at the National Cancer Institute that has many luminaries. You got Rick Fisher, who later went on to be the CEO of Fox Chase. You got Dan Longo, who is currently the deputy editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, Hemonc Division. And you'll know that well because he likes to write a lot of editorials. He likes to say those editorials is a great career opportunity for a young whippersnapper named Dan Longo. So he likes to write the editorials. You got Vince DeVita. Vince DeVita, who ran the National Cancer Institute. You got Susan Hubbard. You got Tom Miller. You got Bob Young. These are luminaries. These are the who's who of this this period of, of oncology. These are the noted figures. And they conducted an uncontrolled single-center, and later even a multi-center study, of promocytobomb in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is roughly, mostly, DLBCL. And they wanted to improve upon the standard of care at that time, which was an old-fashioned combination chemotherapy regimen called CHOP. And what they write in their manuscript was with a median follow-up of five years, the complete response rate was 89% for promocytobomb. That's amazing. A plateau in the survival curve was seen at 69% for promocytobomb. And the prior plateau in the survival curve for CHOP was a measly 50%. We got 20 percentage points on it. We are improving it. Only a fool, an antiquated Luddite, would be using CHOP. These authors would have you believe. And just two years later in the New England Journal of Medicine, Rick Fisher led the cooperative group study that examined the same question, CHOP versus three intensive chemotherapy regimens for advanced non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. They all looked better in uncontrolled phase two comparisons. Now they're doing a randomized study. And here you go. This is it. No greater example of people eating their, eating their hat just a few years later than this study. 225 people, CHOP, you've got two other regiments and PROMA, all in the mix. This is randomized, well done. They all have equivalent bulky disease, LDH. What about ABC and GCB subtype? We didn't look for that back then. It was prior to the loose stout paper. But because it's a large randomized study, I know for sure there are equal amounts of ABC in all those arms. I know for sure there are roughly equal amounts of GCB in all those arms. Or actually, let me put it another way. I know for sure that on that on balance, all of these arms will have equal outcome distributions. There may be some minor deviations in any one of these variables, but with very large randomization, those deviations tend to be very, very slight. And I know for sure on average, they roughly have comparable distributions of outcomes among GCB and ABC subtypes in that study. So here are the results of the seminal Fisher et al. New England Journal study. Bam! Absolutely no difference. Absolutely no difference in time to treatment failure. That's an an old man's PFS. Absolutely no difference in TTF. That's the first figure on the upper left. Absolutely no difference in overall survival. Absolutely no difference. All of these fancy new drugs with better CR rates and uncontrolled single center studies fail to improve upon CHOP. And here I've superimposed where the line ought to be. If promocytobomb performed just as well with curative plateau in the phase three study as in the phase two, you would see this curative fraction. You don't see that. You see equal outcomes. The equal outcome is actually better than historical CHOP. And it's actually worse than the uncontrolled phase two. And they all meet in the middle. And what does this study do? This study validates and sanctions another two decades of CHOP. And actually to this day, you can argue, forget about POLA. This sanctions more CHOP. The promocytobomb, the CR rate in the single institution, 86%. The CR rate in the randomized control trial, 56%. The first question you'll have is, is the dose intensity the same? Perhaps those doctors in the community, they don't know how to give promocytobomb like the geniuses at the NCI. And the answer is someone wrote to the editor and asked them that question. And they were told that the dose intensity was identical, actually, between the multicenter and the uh, single center study. So it's not dose intensity. This is the famous editorial written by Longo, Davida, and Bob Young. Quote The real danger presented by the report of Fisher et al. is that many physicians may opt to use CHOP in the belief that long term disease free survival has been established to be equivalent to that of other published therapies. Here they play the equivalence game backwards yet again. When you have a novel, more toxic, more aggressive, new combination chemotherapy, you have to prove that it is better than the standard of care you don't win if the standard of care fails to beat you you don't get to declare equivalence if you, if the if if your curves are roughly superimposable none of these things are true you have to beat it if you run a superiority study you can run an equivalence study go ahead and do it but i'll tell you what it won't be 225 people per arm it'll probably be a grand per arm because you want that tight margin so you won't be able to do it if you actually do the power calc None of these people understand this, okay? you got to have some basic understanding of non-inferiority, superiority, equivalence designs if you want to talk about these topics. Okay, onward in this discussion. Those who forgets history don't remember. We just saw a 98% CR rate, and that's with standard R-CHOP adding in lenalidomide. What happened in the phase three study of that study? Hmm, let me think. If I recall, the phase three was... Negative, negative, because that's what happens in lymphoma. You have all these promising phase two results, and they don't materialize in phase three. These are what the authors of Smart Start write. Direct comparisons of the CR rate after two cycles of RLI with historical results from RCHOP are not possible. However, we're going to do it anyway. A large meta-analysis identified the CR rate after one and two cycles of RCHOP to be 37 and 58 and 58%, respectively. They're making these comparisons that they know they shouldn't make. Or if they understand history they know their whole study is stupid and pointless you don't need a benchmark response rate you don't need a bench there's no benchmark response rate that will give me greater clarity for a phase two sorry for a randomized phase three there is no response rate too low that i'll say a phase three is really off the table i actually think that it probably there's no response rate too low that a phase three bit off the table knowing that Wyndham got a 67 percent in phase one knowing that he got a 67 percent in phase one i'm sure you're going to have something in that ballpark Okay? Because he didn't relapse refractory. You're going to the front line. It's going to be better. There's no response rate on the high end so great that I'll omit you or spare you the phase three. Okay? That's why this study is stupid. They cannot get a number low enough that will abort mission, and they cannot get a number high enough that we don't need the phase three. Either way, we need the phase three. You don't put somebody in a stress test, cardiac stress test, if you're going to cat them anyway. Okay? Nothing you'll get on stress test will reassure you enough that they don't need a cap, and nothing you get on a stress test will be so bad that you... That you that you will just conclude that, no, actually, that, that analogy doesn't hold there because they'll need the cat anyway. Either way, they'll need the cat. Either way, they'll need the phase three. Okay, that's a better way to articulate it. It's the same principle. Don't order a test if you'll do the same thing regardless of the test. Here, the test is a study. It's the phase two study. A little more history would give these authors some humility and that history is this, that historically we have had rend- we've had phase two studies and phase three studies of the exact same drugs, in the exact same disease, in the exact same line, in the exact same setting. And Eric X. Jan and colleagues from Princess Margaret put these together a few years ago. And here they plot something very interesting. What is the response rate in the randomized phase three study? That's the y-axis. What's the response rate in the phase two study? And if phase two study response rates accurately captured phase three study response rates, these dots would be scattered around the line. But what you see is that the bulk of the dots, 80 plus percent, are below the line. That there is a bias that a phase two study exaggerates the response rate. Here I've plotted where prome would be. It didn't meet their inclusion criteria, but here I plot where it would be. And it would be way an outlier, way an outlier. And we have no idea if Smart Start is going to be over here. I suspect it is. It's going to be over in this ballpark. The only way to know for sure is the randomized study. These are all of the things that have tried to beat chop. R chop 14. Oh, I'm sorry. R ABCVP. Actually, that's probably the most promising one. Uh, R chop with R maintenance. Ooh, I'm sorry. R chop with Everlymus maintenance. Ooh, I'm actually I'm really sorry that anyone have to do that. That's was, that was pretty stupid. R chop plus transplant. That was pretty stupid too. Epoch, the Alliance 50303 uh, didn't work. It wasn't a stupid study. It was a necessary study. Could have been done a little bit sooner before we started giving Epoch willy nilly, but necessary. Phoenix negative. Robust, negative. Remotal B, negative. I hear Remotal B has some new updated OS results in the subgroup of ABC at Ash. They're going to present it. For me, it smells like pee hacking, salami slicing. You're going to have to look for interaction coefficients. You're going to have to look for replication study. Do not let these authors change standard of care without robust statistical proof that Bortezomib, the addition to RCHOP in activated B cell phenotype, actually improves outcomes. It is a toxic drug. It has real neuropathy. You must prove it, not just play sleight of hand with statistical artifact. Polarix will talk about before or probably talked about on this channel. Where, who do, do they really think RLI RLI Archop is going to beat Archop run the phase 3 study. And like all these people, I hope you have your Kleenex ready because most of most of the time you're going to be disappointed. This study actually enrolled 37% of people with stage 1 2 disease. Think about that schema, all that RLI, all that Archop. Why the hell would you do that for someone's stage 1, 2 disease? The NCCN actually says this. If you have non-bulky stage 1, 2 disease, you can get away with R-chop plus th- RCHOP3 cycles followed by RT, category 1. Actually, for older people, especially if we're not radiating something that's like right by the heart, particularly like the clavicle, the neck, or the groin, I love this approach. This is my preferred approach for many years of clinical practice in lymphoma. RCHOP3, RT. Uh, I certainly don't think I certainly don't think that RLI two cycles and then all that chemotherapy and all that RLI is a reasonable choice for those people. And also it leads you one other problem, which, which Brad Call accurately noted in the, in the editorial. Did RLI added to chemotherapy improve the curability of non-GCB-DLBCL? The authors imply yes, by comparing these results with some recently published phase three studies in advanced of DLBCL, where approximately 70% of patients were progression-free at three years. I worry that these comparisons are not valid 37 percent of the patients in smart start had limited disease which is significantly more curable than advanced disease there's also inherent selection bias in studies of this type of design Enrolling physicians may not be willing to enroll their sickest most symptomatic patients on a trial where proven therapy is not administered until cycle three in addition patients are able to fly to a tertiary care center for a second opinion brad call is smart those are all the things i like to say all the things i like to say there's a selection bias on the way in this is a this is an uncontrolled study and even worse we know in lymphoma that these studies are unreliable we know in lymphoma these studies have always been unreliable they've been unreliable since 93 okay they've been unreliable for decades for decades they've been unreliable now you think they're reliable how is that a smart start it's not a start Wyndham had the start he did the phase one it's not smart actually everything about this is actually the opposite of smart it's not actually low toxicity either two patients received two cycles of rli and then withdrew, one because of progressive disease in grade five CNS aspergillosis infection. Grade five means it killed you, you're dead. One person is dead from aspergillus while getting RLI. And then they say it's potentially associated with steroid prephase therapy administered while waiting study activation. Okay, that smells like your study had too much hurdles to jump through before you could enroll. That's one point you're conceding. But the second point is don't blame the steroids. It's likely the massive immunosuppressive effect of RLI. Those aren't benign drugs. Those are potent immunosuppressive agents. And you're giving them, you have, this is, you, I mean, the drugs are most likely responsible for this death until proven otherwise. Okay, to prove otherwise, you really need randomized data showing that there is no increased in aspergillus risk but this will give me serious pause as a drug development person this will give me serious pause that there is going to be some catastrophic toxicity here that ain't good two deaths occurred during therapy therapy one was clostridium difficile infection that also is not good. I mean, I have a bad feeling about this smart start strategy that it's actually very, very toxic. And actually, as you give it, and if you gave it a randomized study, I don't think you just wouldn't beat RCHOP. I will bet money you will lose to RCHOP in OS. You'll be halted for futility or halted for debts. You're going to have to do more than lower your ibrutinib dose from 560 to 420. You're going to have to lower it way, way down because these toxicities are going to haunt you in randomized phase three. Well, unfortunately, I don't see them doing that. They got something else up their sleeve, which I think is also not so smart. Conclusion. It's actually, I will say this very clearly, it's actually a pretty stupid idea to run a phase two lymphoma study to establish a response rate benchmark when you already have a rough idea of that response rate and you know that there is no response rate above which a phase three study is precluded. You already know It ain't going to be 40% because it's 67% in phase one, okay? And you already know that even 100% won't preclude a phase three. You know you need the phase three either way, so it's actually pretty stupid to run this study at all. You'd be better off doing a randomized phase two with expansion to phase three naturally if it looks good. That's the best use of patient resources. You're squandering patients for a very nice figure and a JCO publication, but you are not using your noggin. You don't know the history of lymphoma. Brad Call is right. The paper is wrong. These paper results you can't draw any conclusions and that's what makes it so galling when I see the PI of this study tweet this big news our SMART smart start trial big news our smart start trial is now online in ASCO JCO the first trial to show targeted therapy alone and with chemo can have excellent outcomes in patients with newly diagnosed DLBCL a new precedent established he shouldn't have said a new precedent established because there's no precedent established. The only precedent established is its uh, precedent that's been established for a long time of people doing unnecessary phase two studies to establish benchmark response rate when the right answer was randomization. Nothing is established by this. No one's practice is changed by this. It changes nothing, establishes nothing. No precedent is established. It's neither the start, that was Wyndham, nor is it smart, it's neither one. And their ongoing trial is not a phase three study I see. They actually say their ongoing trial is something called smart stop study, where you stop and start in a smart way. But what's not smart about it is it doesn't appear to have large randomization. It's another phase two study. Look, what's the takeaway here? It's easy to try to make a career writing useless phase two studies, and you can have some high-profile publications, as is evident in this case, but you're not actually helping people and you're not actually displaying an understanding of the history of lymphoma. You need a randomized study here if you want to make any claims about RLI. I'm going to go ahead and bet that it's not going to be successful. In fact, I'm going to bet it's going to be worse because your drugs are too toxic to move up front altogether like that you're not running the randomized study. You're running a phase two study with all this selection bias on entry, including early stage disease, which by the way, why are you doing that? That was, I don't understand that at all. I hope those two people who are dead didn't have early stage disease because that to me would be really make me sick to my stomach. It makes me sick to my stomach that they might've died as a result of treatment, but it would make me really sick to my stomach knowing that they could have had tremendous outcomes with RCHOP3 and then radiotherapy, which is what my practice has always been. I wouldn't feel comfortable enrolling such a person in this study with limited stage disease you are running this study for a benchmark response rate. I can't do anything with that response rate, okay? It's useless to me. The folks back in 19-diggity had an 89% CR rate from Prome Cytobomb. It meant nothing. What response rate do you think you have before we're going to say you're a winner? There's no precedent being changed here. In fact, it's, it's really, you're making the same mistake we've been making for 40 years in lymphoma. Uncontrolled phase two. Career advancement, not doing the right phase three study. It's actually a disappointment. It's not the start. The phase one study was the start, and it's not smart because uncontrolled phase two studies are not smart in lymphoma, particularly. So those are my thoughts. Smart start. This is what you actually need to know about it. I'm coming to Ash. I'll be there in person. I'm covering everything. And unlike other media, and I include those rag publications, which by the way, we have an abstract out. Mani Moyudin and I had a phone call about a year and a half ago had some ideas of how we might study UncLive and these other sort of predatory publications, that abstract has come to fruition. Our phone call has led to an abstract and soon to be a paper showing that, of course, surprise, surprise, they're tremendously biased. I mean, these sort of garbage papers, they stuff into the bag and hang on your doorknob. They're primarily done for the pharmaceutical ads. They're not done to provide you actual useful info. And so as a result, they're, of course, going to be upwardly biased. I have a paper out with Emma Greenstreet that is in the Journal of Cancer Policy that looked at podcasts and oncology, and there's only one that we find that consistently actually says something interesting about cancer drug trials in a critical way, and that's plenary session. And I'm going to be there at ASH. I'm going to be covering all of the plenary sessions. I'm going to cover all of the important, hard-hitting, late-breaking abstracts. There's some things I've heard already, and I know are going to be problematic. If you're reading an abstract at ASH, here's what you have to ask yourself. one. Is it a randomized or uncontrolled study? If it's uncontrolled, it's gonna be very difficult to do much with it. If it's randomized, is the control arm what you would have done outside of the study? If the answer is no, just walk away. Walk away from that, that's a useless study. If the control arm is what you would have done, is the endpoint a meaningful measure of what matters to people? Is it survival quality of life? Or is it MRD rates, which cannot be felt or seen or appreciated? And if the patient didn't know it was important, if the doctor didn't tell the patient it was important, the patient wouldn't know it was important. Don't look at those sort of endpoints. And then finally, post-protocol care. The care post-protocol has to be as good as your practice, and they have to improve long-term endpoints even with that good post-protocol care. You can't say, we lost OS because our results were confounded by subsequent care. That Let me translate that in proper English. Our shitty new drug was so bad, we couldn't even beat standard of care with old drugs given thereafter. It says our new drug is a failure. That's what it really means. So have a critical eye and listen to this podcast. I'm going to be putting out videos during ASH. I'm going to be putting out audio recordings. You're going to enjoy it. So, and if you have any suggestions, email Podcast or gmail.com. Okay, you like this video, you know what to do. Like, subscribe, comment, leave a message below. This YouTube channel mixes videos up. I have some videos that have a broad appeal and I have these videos which are really mostly for insiders, but I think somebody outside of this can learn something. Read the book Malignant if you really want to learn about oncology. You read the book Malignant, you'll know what I'm talking about. Okay, until next time. Point is that if you expect your kids to live for more than a decade or two, they all going to get COVID anyway. And in fact the vast majority have already had COVID. So why the hell are you making them wear a mask? It's it's deranged. And I think the vast majority of Americans have ripped the masks off kids long ago. I was one of the most vocal and early advocates that we ought to do that. I was also an advocate that we ought to generate credible data, which we didn't do, which is a failure of Fauci and others who had the budget. They had the resources but they chose not to do it. But these two people are saying they're going to ma- they keep masking their kids. That's irrational and that speaks to them being out of touch with the American people. The next thing that jumped out at me, one person writes, given the panoply of viruses circulating like flu, RSV, and COVID, we are limiting indoor play dates for our children. This person's four-year-old daughter, for instance, will have an early birthday party before the weather gets too cold to hold it outside. That, frankly, is depressing. That's depressing and sad, and I, I feel pity for, for a child who has to live in a household with this kind of irrationality. For a hundred years, a thousand years, four thousand years, people have been having celebrations for children's birthdays. There's no reason to curtail those because this happens to be a slightly above normal cold and flu season. There would be absolutely no justification for that. No reason to do that. It also puts zero weight on the value of a playdate for a child. Zero weight. But surely a social animal like human beings value and need and thrive from playdates when when we're young. And this kind of trade off this bizarre, puritanical, broken brain kind of trade off. Um, I think this person is getting it wrong. And they're being touted as if they're an expert. They're not an expert. They're just the most irrational person left on the internet. And, and we found the most irrational people. Here's another example. One doctor, an emergency physician and a CEO of a consulting firm has dined indoors in restaurants twice, but quote, it wasn't crowded. Oh, good for you. Virtue signaling. It wasn't crowded. And by the way, how do you know when you go to a restaurant that it's not going to become crowded? You're going to walk out on the check. You see two more tables fill up. This is part of a broken psyche. I mean, I can't imagine living your life like this now that you've gotten up to four, five doses of the vaccine. You've Probably already had and recovered from COVID nineteen. You're still only dining indoors when it's not too crowded. You're so out of step with the American people, and it's 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 irrational. We'll talk about that at the end. Another person who was a deputy dean saw a Harry Styles concert, but albeit with a mask. Oh, great. Well, the point I want to make now is. If you're gonna take a precaution in 2022 and you're gonna wear the mask, then I hope you know you're gonna be wearing it in 2032 and 2042 because ain't nothing gonna be different in the future. COVID 19 is gonna be circulating forever. And again, what would be the point? What is the point of wearing this mask? You are going to get COVID more likely than not many times in your life. And it's hard to believe that being obsessive about a mask just for a few more years before obviously these people eventually burn out because they're gonna get burned out on this uh, is actually going to improve your life course in any meaningful way the next the next thing on concerts and sporting events one doctor and this is the doctor that does all the uh, hard-hitting long COVID administrative research Not the best type of research, not the best type. When you try to link uh, COVID diagnoses that happen to be made in a hospital where most people are actually not being diagnosed in the hospital or not being diagnosed at all because they're not even testing themselves and linking those diagnoses to ICD-10 codes later, you're kind of doing the lowest form of research, sort of fear-mongering research, which happens to play well in the the news, Um, but uh, you're, you're not really doing credible science in my opinion. This person says about going to concerts and sorting events. No, with many O's, replied the chief of research at a clinical epidemiologist. That uh, betrays, uh, I think, again, a delusional, a delusional perception of what uh, this respiratory virus does. One person who's a chair of the Department of Immunology, this person says, is one of the only respondents who doesn't wear a mask while flying, Although she dons one during takeoff and landing. <laughs> what is wrong with you? During takeoff and landing, you think, oh, that's gonna keep COVID at bay. You know what I like to do? I like to I like to say a prayer to Lord Boeing. I like to I like to pour some of my drink on this floor just to just to have good omens. You know, this is no different than superstition. This is really reducing science to superstitious beliefs. Um, how can you have any credibility when you do something so silly? And guess what? I don't wear masks on airplanes. In fact, I won't wear one unless I'm absolutely required to, and even then, wouldn't be too happy about it. But most of the doctors I know don't wear one on airplanes. In fact, you only need to look around the airplane to see the fact that ain't nobody wearing this mask on the airplane. Why would you wear it during takeoff and landing? It's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And you know, the other thing that gets me is these are the same experts that for years, they put down people who believe in other superstitious things, like people who wear amulets or have crystals or uh, swallow vitamins and supplements. They look down on those people as like, look at them engaging in anti-science behavior, but you're also engaging in anti-science behavior, and we're gonna, it's going to get even worse to come. One person says, he doesn't mind taking his mask off to eat while in flight because colleagues who know tell me the ventilation mid-flight should be very good. And one person says he still wears an N95 on the on the airplane. Oh, good for you. <laughs> for a few the rule isn't set in concrete quote i sometimes pop into the store to pick up a few things without a mask but i wear a mask if i expecting it to be busy or if i'll be there a while said an epidemiologist this is deranged you're just going to get covid anyway you you, you you're, you're and then you're going to blame it on the fact that i must have gotten it at that time i didn't wear the mask but that's just a story you're telling yourself you have no credible data and also what again what is the purpose There are just three buckets of things we can do for covid 19. there are things that we can do like slaughtering a goat that don't do anything at all like wearing the mask at takeoff or landing or you know wearing it when the store is crowded but not when it's busy you know that's like slaughtering a goat taping up the playgrounds they have just no credible data they're not even plausible only an idiot would do it we have things that might actually delay the time until you get the virus like sealing yourself in your home and wearing an n95 tight fitting at all times you venture out that might actually delay the time to get the virus Um, But that's only useful insofar as you do category three, which is risk reduction when you were to meet the virus, losing weight, optimizing medical problems, getting vaccinated if you have not already had the virus. Those are things that will lower the risk of bad outcomes, particularly in 2021 with older strains. And those are the things that it's okay to delay getting exposed to the virus until you optimize that bucket. But once you've optimized that bucket two years later, there is no point in delaying anymore. You just need to get on with life. You need to find the pattern you're going to live with for the rest of your life. And that's why these people are deranged. They just can't think that through. Of the 10 people who haven't had a bivalent booster, nine plan to get one before. One doctor, a professor of immunology and microbiology, or what I I like to call a professor of pipetting, this person plans to wait a little longer since I'm only 4.5 months out from my previous booster. Um, And this person also reports that they had had COVID-19. Now, there's no credible evidence that the bivalent booster actually benefits anyone in terms of hard outcomes just yet. MMWR published a a terrible, confounded report on vaccine effectiveness against any symptomatic disease that doesn't tell you about severe disease. And certainly, there's no credible evidence that somebody who's had and recovered from COVID-19 will benefit from a bivalent booster. And delaying some arbitrary amount because your pipette work tells you that that's optimal, but still wanting to get it anyway, that's not exactly thoughtful science. In fact, the fact that all of these people are jumping on the bivalent booster based on mouse data, when that same data had Phil, Phil Kraus and—sorry, had Marin Gruber and Phil Krause still been at FDA, not met a EUA authority, just means that they're just slaves to whatever the FDA says. I mean, these are the same people that had there been different people the FDA who made a different call and didn't authorize the, the bivalent, they would say, well, of course I won't get it. It's not been FDA approved. Now, merely because it's FDA approved, they say it's good, but that means they can't use their own brain. They're not capable of processing evidence. These are not people who are actually skilled or talented or have any aptitude in thinking about medical evidence because I would say the medical evidence is very, very weak. And in fact, it's overwhelmingly likely to be the case that young people and or people who've had the virus Will not have a further reduction in severe disease or hospitalization if one were to run a credible study without confounding. Oh, this is good. Dr. So and so, director of ID at some hospital, avoids shaking hands whenever possible. That's great because, you know, I just don't want to know you. And this other associate professor of viral ecology and evolution carries a device that measures carbon dioxide levels, as does another professor who has set his cell phone to beep when the CO2 levels rise above a set point, and then he puts a mask on. <laughs> I mean again this is this is the jade egg this is the amulet this is prayer this is you know something superstitious you're doing you you've you've just weaponized a mechanistic understanding CO2 high must be bad if i wear a mask then mask good must help me it's just a very crude mechanistic model of how the world works. You have no empirical data that if you actually randomize ten thousand people to your stupid cell phone app or not, what would happen to those people? I, I'll tell you what will happen: there'll be no difference in COVID nineteen outcomes over the next thirty days. If you uh, ra- if you randomized twenty thousand people, first you had a, a run-in period, so you made them all do it, and then you only kept the people who were compliant, who actually could, you know, actually did what they were told. I suspect you'd be left with 100 people and you randomize them to continue or discontinue. I think you'll also have no benefit. So it's not even for it's not even going to be biased by adherence. It's just a stupid thing to do because you're just going to get this hypercontagious virus during the moments when that stupid monitor is not beeping because the sensor is cloud, is covered up or because CO2 is not a perfect surrogate for being able to get the virus, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So this is just a stupid thing to do. It is really sort of religious It is anti-science. This person has no randomized data to show it works. Changing your life around sort of mechanistic models you construct in your head that is no different than the person who believes the crystal has healing energies that will heal them, and that's why it wards off COVID-19. Neither of you have credible data. And both of you are susceptible to a weakness of the brain, a a brain deficit where you are not actually a rational actor. This is a good one. There was an even split on the issue of whether unvaccinated relatives would be allowed to attend family gatherings with eight respondents saying they would and eight saying they wouldn't these people are just plain dumb if they're vaccinated or not they are both able to spread the virus at your gathering there is little to differentiate those two groups now if they haven't had COVID-19 and they're unvaccinated they may have more of a personal risk of bad outcomes That might be true, but that's not why you're doing this. You're doing this presumably because you want to ostracize them to keep people safe, but that's not true. That's a fallacy. And if you were doing it because, um, you were looking out for their health, then are you going to not let them come to your dinner party if their blood pressure isn't under control or they don't take their uh, Coumadin if they need to take Coumadin? No, you wouldn't do that. And in fact, this to me explains, you know, is a symbol of the American culture in decline. These people Are so brain dead that they would rather take a loved one and push them out of their house than allow them in even though that comes at no risk to themselves a cardinal ethical principle that goes back thousands of years across societies is that when somebody is your loved one and you care about them you need to do things for them even that come at personal cost to you even great personal cost to you that's the that's the obligation one has to one's family and loved ones These people are saying they don't want to even do something for someone else that comes at no cost to them. They don't want them in their home just because of this unvaccinated status. The modern ideology has overwhelmed cultural principles that go back thousands of years. Their moral compass is broken. Their brain is broken. They're cruel. I'm glad I have nobody like this in my family because this person... Is an intolerant person, and this person is a fool because they actually, they, they think that science has somehow led them to this path, that they're following the science. They're just a moron. They're just a total moron who doesn't understand that is not going to keep anybody safe. And moreover, even if there was some risk to you, that is a longstanding ethical principle that you should consider, just as you would loan your loved one money, even if it came at some hardship to you. That's what families have meant for thousands of years, and they've created a new morality, which is, if we don't do what the cdc run by you know people who are making constantly making errors tell us to do then you know that that's their moral code i find it bizarre a broken broken compass of those who host thanksgiving feasts a clear majority will use rapid covid tests to lower the risk (laughs) this is also crazy throughout this whole pandemic there has never been a very simple study you take 10,000 people who want to have gatherings, randomize them to giving them rapid tests or not, and then measure COVID outcomes 20 days later. I tell you what the answer is going to be. There'll be no difference in COVID 19 outcomes because, as much as you can control one moment in time, you can't control all the other moments in time. And by 20 days or 10 days or 15 days, I'm sure it'll all swamp out. There's also error rates of the test. There's also people not doing it perfectly. Compliance will vary. All these little bits of error will likely swamp any potential benefit of this. You're just making testing companies rich. But to me, what speaks volumes is that they're happy to do things for years on end without ever asking for credible evidence. They're not really scientists because a real scientist would say, a real scientist, the core of a scientist means skepticism. You have to be skeptical that the routine testing of people before gatherings will improve outcomes. And a real scientist would want to address that skepticism with a study. They're not real scientists because they lack skepticism when it fits an ideological worldview. And that ideology is increasingly political. These people are likely all, and in fact, from the Twitter accounts you can peruse, they're all left of center. They're all Democrats. They're all campaigning in the midterms for Democrats. How can you? How can all the ID experts be people whose amygdalas are broken? Who are all Democrats? I mean, this is just a convenient sample of, in fact, misled, ill-informed, irrational people who are hardly experts in any sense of the word. Those are my thoughts on this. On this. Um terrible article. It's not journalism. Because it's not journalism to go out there with your biases and curate your Twitter feed and find people with your own biases. I mean, I have my own biases, and I've curated my own Twitter feed, but you don't see me with the gall to write an article saying, I surveyed the 34 people I follow on Twitter, and they say that actually, uh, once you have had the infection, or been vaccinated, you need to get back to normal life or decide what normal is going to be for you for the next few decades and hit that. Children don't need to be subject to any restrictions they probably never did and they certainly never should. Those are people who I gravitate to. That's my worldview. But I don't pass off a survey of 34 people who hold that view as if it is a survey of the experts. The truth is, these are the experts the media gravitates to because the media likes crazy COVID fear. These are people who can work from home, type on their laptop. They don't have to actually go out into the world. They're happy to live their cloistered lives. And now they're happy to find like-minded lunatics who have these deranged views that don't fit with any doctor I know, hundreds of doctors. I got more emails when I wrote my article in Vinay Prasad's Observations and Thoughts about this than, than anything. Nobody, Nobody's doing anything like that. You go to any conference, they're having drinks and parties. I mean, the world is back to normal uh, except on the, the on Twitter, but thankfully that part of Twitter's moving to Mastodon and uh, on stat. And so this Thanksgiving, I'm very grateful not to hold any of these deranged and unhelpful views, never to have held these deranged and unhelpful views. I'm grateful to know the difference between a bioplausible app that vibrates when your CO2 goes up and actual evidence that responding to such an app is a good thing. And I'm grateful. That there ain't nobody that I know who would hold any of these crazy, crazy ideas. All right. That's what you get on this channel. Happy Thanksgiving. Like, subscribe, comment, leave a message below. Until next time.